Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, the founder of the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Daniel Espies. He's an MD, PhD at Uppsala University, and he has his first appointment as associate professor. He has a uh, a student and they are working um, as much as they can access their laboratory on a few exciting things right now. He is the co-founder of Digital Diabetes Analytics. We'll talk to him about that a little bit. Um, it's a spinoff company that he's uh, created. And we're also going to talk to him about his main focus in the laboratory, uh, which is rescuing beta cells uh, using human uh, mesenchymal cells. Uh, they've got some exciting data uh, published today he's going to talk about. And then uh, also he's in his laboratory, they're looking at some um, replacement therapies, islet transplantation, uh, macro encapsulation. And then uh, he has a collaboration with this, another stem cell lab at Uppsala and they're running clinical trials uh, also with GABA to see if um, you can improve the counter-regulatory response. So welcome, uh, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Sweden. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation and for starting the Sugar Science. I really like this initiative and the platform. Thank you. Um, so I just want to, let's just start off. Can you talk to us about how you first became scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes? Uh, yeah, so I sort of been interested in science in general, and especially like life sciences since I was in high school. So I, may, I, I did a summer project as like a teenager in Uppsala at the university where I learned to run PCRs and stuff like that. It was not related to diabetes, but then I sort of was convinced that when I graduate, I will continue to pursue a career in, uh, in life sciences. I actually started studying chemistry, but then I switched to studying the medical program in order to become a medical doctor. And... Um, during like the first semester we had this histology course and the first sections that we were sort of meant to look at were from the pancreas and i was like really fascinated when looking at the islets of langerhans and hearing about how they, how they were discovered and like all the history about that so i decided to just reach out to one of the professors to ask them if i can do a summer project related to something about diabetes or more like related to islet physiology. So when I was, I think I was 21 or 22 years old, I did this summer project related to islet physiology and uh, islet blood flow and how it's regulated in different in vivo studies and so on. And, and sort of from that point, I was hooked and uh, everything I read from that point on, I sort of thought about how, how would this impact beta cells and how would that impact in diabetes or islet physiology and so on. So during the last year of my uh, studies to become a, a medical doctor, I, I uh, reached out to one of the professors at that department, who was also a clinician, and I was registered as a PhD candidate. And then that's sort of how it took on. Yeah, that's interesting how you said once you really sort of got hooked on the, um, you know, the physiology, the cell um, of the beta cell and the islets that you started looking at all uh, everything else you were reading in terms of that cell. And uh, yeah. I heard that a few times with the different scientists we've spoken to, and it's very interesting. Um, so I feel like a lot of scientists are coming at it, um, you know, with such a great lens, you know, coming at the, the 
the beta cell with, with really kind of trying to figure this thing out. And it has been a very, it's been a, it's been a difficult challenge to figure it out because it is so complex. Um, but I can't, uh, I'm yeah. very interested to hear about your thoughts. So what are your thoughts about the work being done right now in the field uh, that's, you know, is, is addressing type one diabetes? What do you think about it? So I think that there's a lot of different, really exciting uh, things going on. Um, and there's been quite a lot of like conceptually new things such as like, like the discovery of induced pluripotent stem cells and of course then uh, insulin producing stem cells and uh, also the work from like the Melton lab and so on on how to actually understand better the embryologies of uh, islets and the beta cells and um, also from like the immunological standpoint that uh, uh, type 1 diabetes now is being more and more accepted as a quite heterogeneous disease where there yes. could be different cues and causes for why it's initiated. And um, as coming from Uppsala and working closely with Ulla Koskrian, uh, I've always been used to sort of challenging different dogmas in diabetes, uh, which is uh, I, I, I believe that's important. And I, I know you had a talk with Bart Rohr as well yes. quite recently. He was also a fan of questioning different truths and dogmas. Yes. I, think, I think that's really fascinating. And, and like from the field of cancer immunology, a lot of things are now sort of uh, uh, entering the arena of autoimmunity, which True. is really exciting times. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I guess also that like the shift from focusing on islet transplantation, which has been like for 10 years back was a really hot topic. Now it's more or less considered as a, a clinical routine. And, and the hot topic now is to use other sources for beta cells. So, so I think that's, there's a lot of really fascinating things in, in, in autoimmunity in general, but in particular also for diabetes. And especially since like the clinical setting for diabetes has developed quite dramatically, even though I mean, the treatment is still the same as it was 100 years ago with insulin, but in refined forms. But yes. now we have all these technical aspects of diabetes that is really sort of improving the care and the life for people with diabetes, but also adding a new level of complexity. I mean, diabetes was also always a complex disease from a metabolic and physiological standpoint, but now it's also a very complex disease from a technical point of view, like all these different types of sensors and uh, insulin pumps and um, hybrid closed loops and closed loop pumps. And uh, so, so, so I think there's a lot of fascinating things going on. Uh, and uh, I can't wait to see what we will be in five years because I think, or I hope that the, that the clinical setting has been impacted quite a lot within five years. Yeah, I think so. I think you really summed that up perfectly um, in, in just where we are and, and what are the um, opportunities and what are the challenges. Um, what do you think, so in terms of you know, what you're doing, can you share some exciting new work you're doing in your laboratory? And I, you did mention just earlier a little bit uh, when, before we got on the call um, that you've got some kind of exciting news to share. Yeah, so one of the, like, like we have three main topics, uh, which is not, of course, only my work. It's in collaboration with my, my former uh, supervisor, Perla Carlson, who is also an MD, PhD in Uppsala. And uh, like, like our main topics is like rescue replacement or regeneration. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to sort of look at that from a 
clinical or translational standpoint. So, so we're sort of trying to address how can we make this into a clinical trial? How can we push this into the clinical setting? And one of those concepts is, of course, to sort of try to rescue beta cells after diagnosis. Yeah. And uh, uh, previous studies have been performed, or there's been a lot of studies in that coming out from like Mark Anderson and the Bluestone lab and, and a lot of interesting things. Also from Sweden, there's been a lot of trials with, for instance, there was this GAD vaccine uh, trial, which yeah. it could not prove efficacy. But, but what we've been working with now is a, a mesenchymal stem cell therapy in a randomized clinical trial. We've not published the data, but the data was made public today, or the preliminary data was made public, that we can actually halt the progression or stop the loss of C-peptide uh, by uh, treatment with uh, mesenchymal stem cells, which is, of course, really promising and exciting. Yeah. Where can, where can uh, our, list, our audience find that uh, paper or that uh, data? Um, so the data has been made public on a website. I, I can send the link so you can post it in show notes, perhaps. Sure, perfect. Uh, and, and it's not been published, it's been made public. So the, the study is in collaboration with a Swedish biotech company called Nexel Pharma. Okay. So, so they've sort of just uh, made this public today. And uh, of course that data will be published later on, but that's sort of a separate process. <laughs> yes. So, um, so, so that's really exciting. That is and exciting. Of course opens up for a lot of new, uh, new avenues for how to, to view diabetes. Since like from, clinical setting if you're newly diagnosed with diabetes like the, the, the main the main uh, issue to address is sort of okay let's get started with insulin therapy and then like clinicians are happy with that and then we can get you home with that so so i i always feel like that's sort of a a loss like we know that there's still beta cells uh, of course there's different numbers depending on who you ask and all of that is related to autopsy studies. So we don't really know what's going on, but at least we've lost more than 50%, perhaps 70%. Right. But, but still, you would, when you relieve the beta cells from the stress by initiating insulin therapy, we, like for many patients, that would mean during the honeymoon phase, you would barely need exogenous insulin, meaning that if we could preserve that beta cell mass, okay, that wouldn't mean that you're cured. It would mean that you are but you're still way better off. And, and, uh, and, and, that, and I, I think that's really depressing that we cannot sort of preserve that. Uh, yeah, get, that basically phase. get people to go into remission from their disease, yeah. Yeah. right? That's what we want, or that's what the community wants, um, yeah. the medical community, I think, as well. So much easier to, um, I mean, manage a patient if they had that opportunity to remain in the honeymoon state. Yeah, and, and it, it would sort of relieve the stress from a lot of the therapies with diabetes because it, it would also mean that you're less prone to hypoglycemia, for instance. You could yeah. be, um, perhaps it would mean that you would need insulin during stressful times or when suffering from infections or going through puberty or so on, but, but, but you would still be way better off and, and, and it would be a completely different setting. And I mean, not to mention the risk of, of long-term complications, it, it, it would be a dramatic improvement. Can I ask you with the, can you comment on this, the, uh, with this mesenchymal cells, uh, were these infused or how were they? Um... Yeah, they were infused intravenously. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, and and the, the, the patients were randomized uh, to either placebo or uh, self-treatment. So, uh, and how big was the how big was the sample? Uh, so there were 15 patients, uh, and uh, 10 were treated, and five were in the placebo group. Okay, and you had some positive results. Yeah, so I, I can send you the link, and there's some of the uh, data is presented in that uh, in that uh, uh, newsletter. So, and then of course the study would be published in it as as a whole. Great, um, I will share that. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about your, you know, what, well, you, if you want to talk a little bit more about what's going on in the, the wet lab um, experiments you have running or your student, I guess, has running. Yeah, so uh, like, like from our preclinical standpoint, we're still sort of focused on islet physiology and to some extent still on engraftment of islets or uh, clusters of insulin-producing cells uh, derived from stem cells and how to, to best make them survive in the in vivo setting. Um, we've been studying the impact of implantation sites. Uh, I mean, as you know, from clinical point of view, the, the intraportal route is used for islet transplantation, yeah. which is uh, far from optimal. So we've been looking at alternative sites such as the intramuscular site or the mentum and so on. We've also been doing some studies on um, clinical studies on uh, transplantations of encapsulated islets in a macro chamber. Uh, but, but right now, from for in the lab, we're, we're sort of struck by COVID as everyone else. So, yeah. so the activity is uh, quite reduced right now. But but our main focus from from the lab, which is which I'm not the head of, is, is still to to study islet physiology and uh, and uh, how to improve beta cell survival, uh, how to um, stimulate beta cell regeneration in different models. So, so that's sort of like the, the overriding topics. And, and then, um, um, oh, sorry. Yeah, and then like, like a separate, uh, or not separate, but an interlinked part of that is we're also trying to develop different imaging methods on how oh, yeah. to uh, image or uh, quantify islets or beta cell mass in the in vivo setting uh, with using different techniques such as uh, positron emission tomography and trying to find different tracers that could actually quantify beta cell mass since this is like another thing that really bothers me as uh, when we discuss like rescue therapies it's is that we're sort of unaware what is actually happening within the pancreas and yeah. we have these uh, functional measurements of uh, beta cells. We, of course, we can study C-peptide or insulin secretion in response to different stimuli from glucose or arginine or potentiated curves, which would sort of be the gold standard for the uh, functional beta cell mass. But for many of the trials that's been performed or that we're running currently, we're, we're more or less interested in the, in the actual beta cell mass and uh, how to preserve it. And in order to better evaluate that and to identify those type of treatments, but we, we need tools to visualize and quantify that. So, so that's an sort of underlying topic, and we're working in collaboration in Uppsala uh, with Olaf Eriksson, for instance, and Ulle Korsgren, as mentioned, on, on different uh, clinical approaches to, to quantify beta cell mass and yeah. also for preclinical settings. I think, I think what you're talking about, yeah, I mean, if you could get a, a patient set that had, you know, just one biomarker and then 
do some PET scanning and understand what their beta cell mass looks like at that junction. And then at, once they present with the second biomarker, then you could really almost um, create an atlas, you know, yeah. of, of these, uh, of the progression. And, and that would also improve our understanding of like, like the development of, um, of type one diabetes since many diseases or many autoimmune diseases do not follow the same track. They are more or less relapsing remittent, like multiple sclerosis would often follow that course. Of course, there are some patients with a steady decline, but most patients would have a remitting relapsing mm -hmm. um, progression. And for type one diabetes, we cannot really tell. I mean, you could guess that for some patients, this is the truth, since you would have a, uh, a somewhat extended remission phase. Could, yeah. could actually mean that you have preserved or perhaps like theoretically even regained some of the beta cell mass, at least the functional beta cell mass, which, which could of course be uh, uh, followed by like just measuring C-peptide. You would often find that it's, it's uh, quite suppressed that diagnosis due to the severe stress of beta cells and would then improve. But we do not really know what happens with the beta cell mass during that time. And also we do not really like most or all of our understanding of beta cell mass in general is from autopsy studies. And there's some really elegant studies from Peter Butler, for instance, uh, describing how beta cell mass would, or islet mass would be altered throughout life. And it's more or less stable. Uh, but like the tricky part with autopsy studies is that you only get one reading, you only have one shot. <laughs> so yeah. we do not really know what happens during like different, states of our lives uh, if we have a severe infection covid or whatever or a septic uh, shock or something i mean you, you you could speculate that that would have an impact on beta cells or beta cells would be stressed or perhaps even die but then regain uh, their mass but it would, since we need to lose quite a lot yeah, to, yeah. To, to get hyperglycemic we don't know so even during pregnancy there's you know there, there that could be an interesting model to yeah, to, to monitor the shifts, and I don't know. Have you heard of, um, you know, uh, um, Jacob uh, Hexer Sorensen? He's doing a lot of really interesting um, imagery on, um, well, mostly mouse pancreas, but his some of his work is really beautiful. I, I would love to see. We're actually hoping to get a, a podcast <laughs> with him, but we'd love yeah. to uh, see him um, get into that realm. It's really he's done yeah so, so, so there's some really like uh, stunning images of the pancreases and 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 how like like the beta cell mass actually or islets are are altered in different states uh, of course most of them are from preclinical setting but still it, it's really fascinating and and also as you mentioned for for pregnancy uh sad enough what we know about beta cell mass during pregnancy is also based on autopsy studies uh, which is kind of depressing to think about, but but during normal physiology, beta cell mass would increase by fifty percent give or take. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. soon after birth of your child, then beta cell mass would go back to where where it started from. And um, there's of course some cues to what that could be, and it could be related to prolactin or prolactin receptor. And we're now actually running a clinical trial in Uppsala, which we're about to finish, uh, to, to study what happens during pregnancy if you have type 1 diabetes to start with. Mm, yeah, we've, fascinating. Um, we've been working in a previous study in order to identify patients 
that still have endogenous uh, beta cells left or remaining C-peptide in uh, very low levels in the picomolar range, meaning that it doesn't really affect their day-to-day -day glucose control, but it's still sort of a uh, evidence that there are some remaining living beta cells. Yeah. So we're now trying to see what happens in that group of patients uh, if they undergo pregnancy, for instance. Would that mean it, does beta cell mass increase even though it's so little to begin with, it doesn't really... Yeah, uh, I mean, does it? Have you seen any anything? So we have some preliminary data suggesting that it, it's at least more likely to have endogenous uh, insulin secretion or beta cell mass if you're pregnant as compared to women with diabetes who are not pregnant. So, so and now we're going through like that data and trying to, to, to summarize all of that data to see, to see if it actually holds up. So, so we're, because during that study, we also did... Uh, 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 stimulated measurements of uh, C-peptide mm -hmm. at different stages of pregnancy and then also uh, after pregnancy and after uh, an additional time period of 6 to 12 months. So we're now trying to, to um, summarize all of that data uh, to, to see if it holds up. But, but, it, but it, it looks kind of interesting. Uh, so so. And, yeah. and then like the main, main reason for that study is like First of all, conceptually, can, can you increase beta cell mass or at least our <laughs> functional yeah. measurement of beta cell mass if you have type 1 diabetes? And that would be kind of cool in itself. And uh, second to that, what are the cues and what are the regulators of that? So we've been collecting a lot of plasma and serum and uh, blood yeah. and biomarkers during that period to see if, if, if we can find any. Yeah, because, you know, if you had, uh, if you're saying that during pregnancy, the beta cell mass increases during normal pregnancy, well, maybe if you've got a low pregnancy at onset of type 1 diabetes, could you replicate the situation of pregnancy and, you know, coax the, the beta cell mass to, to get bigger? course you do have the immune assault yeah <laughs> so you but, but i mean uh, so, so, so um yeah so pregnancy is a really fascinating physiological state because you it's also a time period where where your immune system would be mm -hmm. adapted to host a a fetus that is uh, of course uh, a foreign body uh, more or less yeah <laughs> and, i've and, always and, yeah i've always been curious about this i've had a few conversations a few years ago with doug melton about the fact that HLAG is secreted by these placental trophoblastic cells yeah. and it's sort of protective, right? It's protective of the developing fetus. And then, so pancreatic beta cells also have uh, HLAG. Laura Chrissa showed that um, in her work when she's done at the SOC. But so why, why isn't that HLAG protecting the pancreatic beta cells in type 1 diabetes? Or maybe it's Maybe it's not there. Who knows? Yeah. So, so I mean, so from that standpoint, and also since like like pregnancy is a state where you would have a dramatic increase in growth factors, and and I mean you're primed to to yeah. <laughs> regenerate re and replicate cells. So, so there could be a lot of cues either related to regeneration or immune factors that that would be uh, favorable for for the beta cell mass and. And also, I mean, many other autoimmune diseases are affected by pregnancy, um, not, not always for the better. For instance, SLE or lupus could get much worse during pregnancy, whereas other rheumatic diseases would improve during pregnancy. So, so 
So, so we know that during pregnancy, a lot of things happen is happening, but yeah. since we cannot really monitor beta cell mass, it, it, it's difficult to say, but, but that's a, I, I think at least a very interesting topic to, to try to see if we can find cues or stimuli or prove that beta cells can actually uh, increase even in, in the type one diabetic setting. Then, yeah. I mean, you, you could sort of build from that to, to, to find an, another stimuli for that. It's a, it's a fascinating um, model system. Um, it's just, it, it, again, like we were talking about earlier, there's, there's so much data there. You're, the experiment's going to have to be carefully, you know, um, vetted, I guess, yeah. to kind of separate one thing from the other. Yeah. But, and, and that's like really tricky, like from, like, like from running clinical trials in general is, is quite a challenge and, uh, in to study, <laughs> study, like pregnancy is of course a logistical challenge in itself since oh, yeah. uh i mean it's, it's not a randomized trial <laughs> no uh, all, all jokes aside but but i mean it, it, it's taken i i now think it's close to three years to actually finish that study to to try to get between 15 to 20 patients uh, who have undergone a full pregnancy uh, so, so it's quite time consuming and and of course there's so many factors that could be so like but but the main objective is to, to first summarize and see is it something happening with c-peptide or stimulated c-peptide are there any indirect evidence that something is happening with the beta cell mass and, and based on that we would then try to, to disseminate what are the factors related to that yeah I, i'd be very interested to watch that uh, study unfold it's really um fascinating i think what about your digital diabetes analytics? Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? What's going on there? Yeah, so that's sort of a, a spin-off. Um, like, like as I was saying initially, um, we're running all of these clinical trials and, and like the overall aim is to, to, um, to uh, look at either ways to rescue beta cells or to replace them or to regenerate them. And uh, that's something we've been focused on for a long time. And course many other groups throughout the world and I, I think that many clinicians have been telling their patients like within five to ten years we will have this really new and impressive treatment yes. and then five to ten years pass and, and we're still saying the same thing I'm very optimistic that the coming five years <laughs> will be will actually deliver but but I mean yeah so but with, with that sort of um, revelation and since I also work with, uh, in the clinical setting, see, seeing type one diabetes patients, we, um, we started to think about what, what can we do that is in the near side? Like how can we prove things right now? Yeah. And what are the main challenges? So like the main challenge with diabetes is not like in everyday life, how to, to figure out what's the cues for re regenerating beta cells. So you sort of need to cope with the disease, and that means uh, measuring glucose, delivering insulin, trying to balance that out, and taking into account all the things that happen, like exercise, stress, uh, sleep, whatever. So as a clinician, we have now all these technical tools, and diabetes has uh, become a really complex disease also from a technical standpoint, not only from a physiological standpoint, but, but it, I mean, that's a dramatic improvement that we now have the continuous glucose monitoring and flash glucose monitoring. And in Sweden, nearly 90% of all patients with type one diabetes are using some type of sensor. Mm -hmm. That's, that's great. great. 
and that improves the everyday life. It makes it much easier, but it also sort of drowns the healthcare sector in data. And that means we previously had this challenge that we were lacking data. We had these uh, scribbled down glucose levels in a calendar, and it could be like between two or five values every day, sometimes less, sometimes more. And that meant we were sort of filling out the gaps and guessing based on our knowledge on glucose control and insulin kinetics, saying like, okay, we should probably increase your long-acting insulin or you should take more insulin to every meal or stuff like that. Now we actually have sort of the, the whole picture, more yeah. or less the truth, what's happening with your glucose levels. And the problem now is that we more or less lack the tools on how to interpret all of that data. And at every clinical visit, which most often would be like six to 12 months apart, there could be more than 50,000 new data points. And that's of course not possible to go through manually. And that means we were like in the clinical setting, we focus on mean values to a large extent. We use, of course, the ambulatory glucose profile or the AGP report, and you would say, okay, you were spending 70% within range, and that's really great. Then you have some percent above range, and there are some percent below. But it really doesn't give an insight on how to optimize treatment. And therefore, we now started a lot of different research initiatives on how to use different data science techniques to interpret that type of data with especially emphasis on machine learning and how to, to interpret time series of data. And what we're now focusing on is how to, since there are a lot of previous studies trying to predict, so you can use the retrospective data to predict uh, the upcoming one or two hours. And that's really helpful because you would get a forecast saying, okay, if I would continue on this road, then I would get a hypoglycemia within the next hours and it's pretty high risk and I need to, to change what I'm doing or to eat something. And it can also predict, of course, hyperglycemia and stuff like that. But it doesn't really give an insight on why did that happen. In, in the living moment, you can, of course, realize, okay, I'm about to get the hypoglycemia and I'm exercising. So that's probably the cause where I just took a lot of insulin to a meal or I took a correction dose between these. So you would know like, in that moment. But from a healthcare perspective, when we get the curve in retrospect, it's quite difficult to actually entangle why did this happen? Why were you hypoglycemic uh, two weeks from now? Or why were you hypoglycemic uh, a year ago? And uh, is there a pattern in this data? Does this yeah. uh, happen on some course of that so what we're how doing are you guys uh, untangling this sort of thicket of data on your end yes yeah, so, so we started sort of considering okay how do we handle data that's similar to that for instance uh, AKG measurements like uh, from cardiology point of view there would be threshold levels and there would be diagnostics for your EKG and you would have automated interpretations of that so so we sort of started in that end and then we tried or we're now working on trying to sort of get a clinical judgment on different um, alteration of the glucose curve, where hypoglycemia is the most obvious because you would have a threshold level. So, okay, if it's below 3.5, that means it's a hypoglycemia. So then we're trying to uh, dissect what's the most likely root cause for that. Is it from your basal insulin rate or basal insulin pressure? Is it from the a nearby meal and the bonus dose to that meal or is it from an overcorrection dose of insulin so are you trying try to personalize this medicine basically per, per patient 
or are you looking at huge data sets? What do you? Uh, so we're looking at huge data sets from retrospective data from a lot of patients uh, in uh, both the pediatric and adult setting from Uppsala. So, and, and what we're trying to do is to, to sort of train these uh, machine learning models or first to identify what's the best model to use, um, which seems to be based on a convolutional neural network model. And then we're trying to train that in order to be able to automatically give the most likely root cause for hypoglycemia, for instance. And by using that tool that we can then sort of map out for each individual, what's the dominant cause for hypoglycemia and how can we use that information to better suit that treatment? And I mean, there could be extremes in that end. Some patients have a lot of hypoglycemic events and uh, more than two thirds or like close to 75% uh, of those are due to a high basal insulin pressure. So yeah. like, like the correction for that is quite simple and easy. So, so you would of course need to reduce the basal insulin rate, but then there could be different other cues. For instance, some patients with uh, really unfavorable glucose control overall still have a lot of hypoglycemic events uh, mm. due to uh, extensive uh, overcorrection doses. And that, that's, of course, quite straightforward to say, okay, stop taking overcorrection doses, but then you need to sort of step back and say, okay, why, why did you need to take this dose at the first place? Why is your glucose constantly high? So we have this need, and then it could be that the solution is the opposite from the former case that you actually need to increase the basal rate or the long-acting insulin analog. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a huge up and down. I think when you put in exercise, which is so important for type one diabetes, then that also introduces the whole other problem of controlling that. Um, yeah, and you know, so you've got you, you. There's so many variables, and I, when you say you're sort of looking at these data with the neural network, how confident are you that this neural network or this you know parsing of the data will um, give you something of interest? Have you seen anything yet? Yeah. So, so like the. Um, if, if you cross-reference what, what this neural network would, would give as the most likely cause with what would a clinician give, so there's resemblance to that is close to 90%. So, so it's, I, I mean, it, it performs almost as good as a clinician would, mm, but then there's the problem like, okay, how do we know that the clinicians are the best to, to decide what was the underlying cause? So for that, we need to go back to the, like, like we have, data from, uh, of course, the glucose curve and the uh, insulin dosing and uh, registered carbohydrate intake. But of course, there's also pitfalls with that since carbohydrate intake is registered manually. And uh, I mean, based on how you would estimate carbohydrate intake and so on. So, so of course, there's, there's a lot of pitfalls to that. And in this model, we are not taking into account physical activity, which is, of course, an opportunity since in fact, most people today would use some type of activity tracker, either it's a, a yeah. smartwatch or like your phone or whatever. You could at least get like the number of steps that you would take every day. Sure. And in most cases, you would, or most cases, but many patients would have some type of smartwatch that actually tracks your pulse and a lot of data. But I, I mean, theoretically, you, you could cross-reference that to, to get... Later. Yeah. So, so, so you can look at that curve and, th and that's something you could never do manually. You cannot, during a clinical visit, go through like, that data on top of the, the, the glucose data. But, but in these type of models, you can actually just combine them to say, okay, if you have this pattern on your glucose curve, 
it sort of looks like your overcorrection or it looks like your basal rate. And taking into account also the data on physical activity, it seems as if it isn't that. So, so I mean, by just combining the amount of data that we actually already have, we can gain a lot of insights on that. And, and I, I think that would, would increase uh, the precision in how we're dosing insulin. And one of the main advantages with using sort of automated systems, even though every system will have its own pitfalls, is that it's also sort of a uh, quality security check. So if you're at a clinical visit currently, if, if we don't use any system to interpret your data, I mean, if you upload it and if you go through it, um, if it's done manually, you can still risk of missing really important stuff and you can miss sort of a underlying pattern that, for instance, the amount of hypoglycemia during night is increasing or that you have hypoglycemic events that is sort of revealing that you're a bit unresponsive to that. doesn't have to mean that you have a hypoglycemia and awareness, but at least that you have increasing, increasing duration of hypoglycemic events, yeah. which might be something that you need to to take into account when when uh, when dosing your insulin and it's a risk that we're missing that info because we're now focused to a large extent to the hba1c levels and then we have all these other measurements that we sort of focused on like your blood pressure your blood lipids and stuff like yeah. that so, so and even in the clinic i think endocrinologists oftentimes you know they they have many patients to see yeah so how how much time can they give to looking at the dexcom results or looking at the CGM results, and and so if you did, if if clinicians did have some kind of um, AI server, AI system that would um, do a more, you know, comprehensive look at, at these data and then give them uh, interpretation, that would be great. Yeah, and and I mean the use of those types of systems. Uh, that's why I'm calling it the quality control system. It's also that as the people were sort of biased to look for patterns and sometimes we see patterns that is not really relevant but to mm. to us as a clinician they make a lot of sense because you were sort of predetermined that okay i need to increase the basal rate and then you look at that curve to find the evidence for that hypothesis and you and you find it because i mean if you would look at the last seven days or 14 days then you would get one picture but perhaps if you're looking at the last uh, three months you would get another idea so, so I, I think we're sort of biased to look at those type of curves to fit our like preconceived ideas on how to best alter the treatment and also we're lacking like the tools to actually compare different time periods so for instance say that we yeah. would change the therapy or like even more uh, clear said like we would go from mdi to pump okay yeah. so how do we know if, if things improve of course you can you can ask the the person themselves do you like the new treatment is it better and yeah you, you so if, if if you like it then you would keep it but but if you have these more severe underlying patterns for instance this is they called brittle diabetes which would often be a cause for considering eyelid transplantation or pancreas transplantation which would give you like repeated severe hypoglycemic events uh, which could be potentially lethal and and i mean from a university clinic, you would probably screen for that. And, but that's not the case for every clinic. And sometimes you would be sort of misunderstood saying, okay, you're not, you're not uh, really taking care of your diabetes. You're taking too much insulin. You're not doing the correct things. And that's why your glucose is running up and down. But, but so, so that's also another part of it. Like if we have these uh, 
uh, automated systems in order to, to uh, dissect the curve, that would also make it easier to identify patients that really doesn't fit to the model. So if the algorithm would fall short saying, okay, cannot be, be categorized, that would also be a really important notion to the clinician saying, okay, if the algorithm cannot categorize these glucose curves, it means there's something really strange going on and then I need to reconsider other things. Right. But, so, so, you, so I think so there's a lot to it. Yes, there is a lot to it. So your digital diabetes analytics, um, you know, spin-off companies, it seems to me is very focused on the clinic, you know, really trying to yeah. help clinicians um, interpret these data and, and use them to help the patient. And we talked earlier, you know about Tidepool, right? They're, they're yeah. a nonprofit here in California. Yeah. I mean, do you, um, what do you think about a, sort of a collaboration, collaborative um, venture with someone like Tidepool or are, do you feel that you're something totally separate? So I, I wouldn't say that we're totally separate and the discussion or collaboration with Tidepool would be, of course, really interesting. And also there's the T1D exchange program, which is collecting right. a lot of T1D data. Yes, so so there's, a lot, there's a lot, yeah, so there's a lot of initiatives that's really interesting from this uh, point of view. And, and just to sort of like, like a comment, so, so what we're focused on now with um, Digital Diabetes Analytics is, is firstly based for like the healthcare sector, but, but our initial plan was actually to launch something directly to people living with type 1 diabetes. So, so we're actually three co-founders, uh, myself and then my uh, colleague, uh, who's also a professor in Uppsala, Pula Carlson. So we're coming sort of from the clinical and research point of view. But the third co-founder is an engineer who's also been living with type 1 diabetes since the age of 15. So we're sort of joined together in that notion that we need something to improve the care for diabetes, but we also need a product or some type of system that can improve the everyday life for people living with diabetes. And uh, we are not focused on delivering algorithms that can uh, uh, steer or run a closed loop pump. Uh, so, so that's not our aim. Uh, our aim is to sort of give systematic advice to everyone, regardless if you're using MDI or pump. And uh, for those who use a closed loop pump today, or even if it's from an open source like Night Scout or DYI, uh, this would more or less serve like a systematic review of your data, saying like, okay, you're using this pump, it's all well, but we can still analyze the data to see, is it doing the job for you? And that, that can be helpful, especially if you have <laughs> Yeah, altered the settings yourself uh, for, for yeah. the pump. No, it, it's, it's, it's a very important and needed tool. And um, I, I hope you, you guys are able to launch it into the next yeah. uh, phase because I think it's, it, it, it could be so, so powerful. It could be so powerful for patients and clinicians. Also, just as a, like, like a fun uh, sidestep from that, when, when we did this, or when we're working with this, uh, which is a research project on how to best uh, uh, sort of label different hypoglycemic events for their root causes, we started questioning who is actually the best to do that. Is it clinicians or, or people living with diabetes? Yeah. So we're now building a, a quiz or an app, which is more or less just for fun, with, um, with uh, fictional uh, glucose curves, which is uh, then intended for, for people or anyone who wants to, to use it 
So, so you can sort of compete against the, our clinical experts and the algorithm to see oh. if, if we can sort of label the underlying causes for hypoglycemic events. Yeah, that's um, cool. I bet, you know, especially kids who have um, type 1 might be very intrigued to play the game, right? If it's yeah. a game type thing. So, so, so it's also sort of like, like this is like a side project. So, but, but, but my ambition, and it, it's actually really cool because we have a... a um, a uh, guy helping us with that, who's uh, living with type 1 diabetes himself. He's only 17 years old, but he's sort of like a whiz kid in, in data sciences. So he's sort of, sort of building on this app. And, um, and I think that could be a really intriguing way to, to look at things, like for, for systems aimed for the people themselves. I mean, yeah, as no, we were talking about, it's, like... It's a great idea. Living, yeah, so in the living moment, like, you would know why, why am I... I'm about to get hypoglycemia. Of course, if it's during the night, it can be tricky, but, but okay, this was due to physical activity, or I, I took too much insulin at a meal. You would know that. But when you look back at your data for the last six months, I mean, I cannot even remember what I had for lunch yesterday. So, so it's kind of tricky <laughs> to go back and say, okay, I, I had this hypoglycemia, do this and that. So, but, but if you can sort of just label it in, in, it, in the moment when it happens, then you can sort of make your own personalized database out how did you interpret this situation? And you can, you can look to that type, your own answers compared to what would an algorithm say, what would the clinical experts say, and how do they align? Yeah. And uh, it, it, it could, I mean, you could use it to sort of improve the algorithm after it's been validated by some type of quality control system. But, but it can also be used to sort of identify gaps in your knowledge on how your glucose reacts to different situations. Sure. No, it sounds like something that T1D Exchange might be very interested in. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, plan. I like it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, yeah, so, so I sort of rambled on about a lot of things. But, no, but not just at all. To, it was to, fantastic. To, it was a great conversation. To, to, to mention one thing that I did not talk much about, is that we're also focused on like clinical trials with uh, regenerative therapies. And we have this uh, really fascinating study, if, if I may say so, in which we use GABA as a drug candidate or a long-acting GABA analog, which is in collaboration with a Swedish biotech company called Diamid Medical. Okay. And uh, that's actually aimed for studying regeneration of beta cells in type 1 diabetic patients. Um, in order to sort of resemble the preclinical data on GABA or GABA. But, but that's also sort of related to hypoglycemia. And I sort of mentioned to you as a teaser that uh, we were looking at the counter-regulatory response in GABA treatment as sort of a security measurement since GABA receptors have been linked to activation of GABA receptors to benzodiazepines and other stuff related to increased risk of hypoglycemia. Whereas with this treatment, it seems as it's more or less the opposite that it would uh, improve their counter-regulatory response to hypoglycemia. So, so that's also a really fascinating sort of side effect that we're now studying more into detail. That's very interesting. Yeah, the GABA, um, I, I'm going to be keeping an eye on that one. I'm really interested in GABA and how it, um, you know, it, how it impacts uh, type 1 diabetes, the whole GABA-GAD. Um, interaction is so cool. I'm not cool. It's, it's so interesting. Like, why is GAD one of the first autoantigens? I mean, what is going on that 
that brings it, uh, in many cases, in most cases, to be one of the first biomarkers for type 1. Yeah. And intercellular, it's also sort of, uh, too, so it's weird. Yeah, it's intercellular, and it's, it's, it's also related to sort of the progression of disease. If you have high titers, that would mean you would more rapidly progress to complete loss of beta cells. So, so, so it, it's a really fascinating topic, and uh, it relates to a lot of things in cellular biology that we do not fully understand yet. <laughs> I know. Well, it's been 100 years, so we better get, get going. Yeah, we better get going. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to get going. Come on. I know you guys are, I, I know you and, and all the other scientists are, are just doing a phenomenal job and working, uh, you know, very hard at, at cracking this code. And um, many scientists have devoted their lives uh, to this uh, disease. So all kidding aside, you guys are champions and we applaud you. Um, and thank you so much, Daniel, for talking to me today. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was really interesting to speak to you, both from a scientific standpoint and from, you know, your wealth of clinical experience. I think that that puts you at a, um, a very unique opportunity as an MD-PhD to approach this disease from both sides and, and have your eyes open on both, uh, in both um, realms. So thank you for choosing this disease. And, yeah. and, and for doing all that you're doing, I, I cannot wait to see what's coming out here um, with this new, um, you know, with this new mesenchymal cell uh, data. So we'll look for that and we'll share that with our, with our audience as well. Yeah, cool. And really nice to be invited. And um, I mean, if, if anyone wants to reach out regarding collaborations or anything close to that or just discussion, I'm available for email or LinkedIn or whatever. I'm, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to we'd love to hear that. More collaboration, more the better. Yeah, okay. Especially data scientists. As you might know, I'm not a data scientist myself, but it, it, it's really fascinating to discuss diabetes and stuff with people coming out of different uh, areas and especially machine learning, because that also pushes me to think about how do I explain this disease and what are the steps I'm taking when I'm making decisions and so on. So, so yes. that's a really, really fruitful collaboration. It is. Shout out to all machine learning people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's a place to plug in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, sign off now. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Take care.